Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of the Spectator. And this week, I'm joined by David Wallace Wells, who is the deputy editor of New York Magazine. He's over from the states, but he's also the author of a new book called *The Uninhabitable Earth: A Story of the Future*. This is a book that really sums up a lot of what we know about climate change, and it begins with the words, "It is much, much worse than we think," or words to that effect. Yeah. <laughs> um, David, how screwed are we? Well, to me, it's all a matter of perspective. So I don't think that there's much chance that we stay below two degrees Celsius of warming, which is what the scientists call the threshold of catastrophe. And we're headed for... by the end of the century to about 4, 4.3 degrees of Celsius. Between that, you know, between those two poles, where we end up, how far along close to 4.3 and how close to 2 we get, it's an entirely open question that is being determined every day by the way that we act. Um, This is not, you know, it's not a question that can be answered with science per se. It's a question that really is about what kind of action humans take and how quickly and at what scale. And so I think it's a little bit, hard to answer. It's really, it's a question for the political sciences rather than the natural sciences. I would say personally that without some dramatic intervention of what's called negative emissions technologies, so by the simple path of replacing dirty energy sources with clean ones, we're unlikely to stay below even three degrees of warming by the end of the century. And that would mean the total loss of just about all ice on the planet, which would eventually raise seas by as much as 80 meters. It would mean that many of the biggest cities in the Middle East and South Asia were uninhabitable as quickly, in summer anyway, as quickly as the middle of the century. It could mean as much as 75 or 100 percent more conflict, warfare, and also down to the level of individual conflict. So the effects would be catastrophic, but they would also be all-enveloping. And that's the kind of for me, the main the main message of the book, I mean, you mentioned that it summarizes a lot of what we know, and I think that's absolutely true. But I think one thing that we've not really appreciated as, as a kind of engaged public is just how all-encompassing this story is, that it is not simply a matter of coastlines and sea level. It's not even a matter of how global warming will affect our agriculture or our economic growth, but it is really a total system that will enclose everything about the way that we live in the coming decades, such that our politics and our culture, the way we plan for families in the future, these are all things that we've taken for granted as infrastructure of the modern world, and I think will be disrupted and possibly quite dramatically disrupted by climate change. And that's, to me, the kind of true subject of the book, not just what is happening and what will happen, but what it will mean to the way that we live on the planet to watch the world degrade. I mean, people say, look, we've had dozens and dozens of books about climate change we've had films about climate change we've had documentaries and news reports and journalism about climate change you know what is it that's new in this book that you're bringing as you see it to the party that that needs to be said that hasn't been said before and isn't said well there's sort of two categories there's the how i'm talking about and stitching together the science and then there's the sort of second half of the book which is i think of as the kind of humanities of climate change so to talk about the science for a second i think basically there have been three big shortcomings in the way that most journalists and scientists talked about climate in newspapers and magazines on television and in books in the past and i'm trying to correct for each of those those are The first one is about the speed of change. You know, I think mostly we'd sort of come to understand that climate change was quite slow and likely to happen 
at the fastest over the timescale of decades and probably really over the timescale of centuries. And therefore, it was something that we needn't respond to so urgently because we expected that economic growth and technological progress would allow us to sort of develop our way out of it. In fact, more than half of all the emissions that we've put into the air from the burning of fossil fuels have happened just in the last 25 years. So that's since Al Gore published his first book on climate change. It's since the UN established the IPCC. So we've done more damage in those 25 years to the climate than in all of the millennia before, more damage knowingly than we managed in ignorance. And that damage has been done functionally in real time. You know, there's a little bit of a time lag, but really we are writing the climate story of the next decade in every decade. And we're already seeing with extreme weather, the transformations happening very quickly. So we're really walking through this in real time. It's not something that's on a time delay of centuries. That's the first thing, the speed, it's really happening fast. The second thing is the scope. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, we used to really think about, we're we're so focused on sea level and, and coastlines. But in fact, the impacts are much, much more all pervasive than that. So that, you know, if we don't avert course by the end of the century. Our global GDP is expected to be as much as 30% lower than it is than it would be without climate change, and that's an impact that's twice as deep as the Great Depression. It would be permanent. I mean, it affects our agricultural yields so that, again, if we don't change course by the end of the century, our grain yields will be half as high as they are today. So the same number of plants, the same acres of agricultural land would only be half as bountiful. And we expect that by the end of the century, we'll have about 50% more people. So we'll have 50% more people and 50% less food to give them. And it has, you know, it has impacts on just about everything you can, you can imagine down to domestic assaults, down to the rates at which people are admitted to mental hospitals. I mean, the, the number of features of modern life that we're now learning are affected by climate and temperature is just growing by the day. And I think that people have not yet begun to appreciate just how total this story is. That's another thing that I was sort of trying to correct. And the third thing is about the severity. So, you know, most scientists think of this two-degree threshold as the, they've called it the the threshold of catastrophe. And most journalists and storytellers and scientists, when they were playing the role of public advocates, therefore talked about that or communicated that threshold sort of as though it was a ceiling of warming. And in fact, it seems as though it's functionally a floor. And so there's this whole half of the bell curve of possibility from two degrees out to 4.3 just for the century that the public had not really contemplated before. So in all of those ways, I was trying to sort of look a little more unflinchingly and take a bigger picture assessment of the impacts. I think that's one big part of the what is new about this book. But the thing that excites me more and I find personally interesting is sketching out what all of those impacts will mean beyond the science. So as I say, like how we think of the march of history, whether we continue to see technology as something that helps us or start to see it as something that has damaged our our lives, how we organize our politics and our geopolitics, how we tell stories, what the kind of Hollywood movies we make, really everything about the way that we live, I think, will be transformed in some way by this force. And I think this book is the first major effort to sketch out those areas of inquiry. I don't think I'm offering definitive predictions, but I'm saying these are categories of inquiry that people haven't really yet thought about. And since we're going to be living in an era of climate change in the 21st century in much the way that we might have thought we were living in the era of modernity in the 19th century, we should probably think about how all of these effects are going to unfold in each of our lives. Yeah. You t- I mean, if what you write in the book, because it's very, I mean, completely hair-raising stuff, is sort of true and is based on the latest scientific stuff, why are we not seeing 
more so, you know you said that the scientists haven't communicated that something looks like a ceiling when actually it's a floor and the, you'd think in something so studied and you know with so much attention that if everything you said was absolutely true we'd be seeing scientists on our television with their hair on fire all the time looking back over the past decades i think you're absolutely right that the the messaging has been quite cautious and I personally think that we've been poorly served by that caution, but it is also a sort of understandable approach. Scientists are themselves temperamentally cautious and rigorous and careful. They're uncomfortable with hyperbole and exaggeration. But I mean, journalists aren't, and journalists are the way we get most of our information on this. Well, I think that in this particular case, the journalists have taken their cue largely from those scientists, and there has been a kind of conventional wisdom that the public would likely respond most to climate storytelling that was driven by hope and optimism rather than alarmism and fear. And I don't personally think that's completely naive. I think there is value in hopeful storytelling and optimistic storytelling. But I also know as someone who came to this story late and has now devoted, you know, turned his whole life around to write about it, that fear can be an incredibly motivating and galvanizing emotion. And that I know that personally, but I also know that looking at the world and seeing the way that we've responded to threats from cigarette smoking to nuclear proliferation, you know, we tend not to leave fear on the table when we're trying to rally political energy. And for a lot of, I think, kind of unfortunate reasons, scientists and their sort of cousins in the media did that for a very long time. I think it was also the case that it seemed less terrifying a decade or two ago. The changes that we would have had to make if we started global decarbonization, say in 2000, were much smaller than the changes that we need to make now. If we started then, we'd only need to be cutting emissions by 3% per year to stay below one and a half degrees Celsius. We're now at about a rate where we need to cut them by about 10% per year. And if we wait another decade, we'll have to cut them by about 30% per year, which is a basically impossible rate. And the science is also growing in that research into things like economic growth, like I mentioned, and conflict, like I mentioned. These are really new areas of research. 10 or 15 years ago, there was basically no research about them, and we didn't know that climate was so important in the way that, say, economies functioned. And I think some of that news is sort of just beginning to filter out from the academic community into media and through that to policymakers, which is the ultimate, you know, the ultimate end goal. And I think the new research on the economic impacts is the most important there. So we had a kind of intuitive idea. I say this as someone who thinks of himself as having lived most of his life as a kind of caricatured neoliberal subject, someone who believed basically in growth and progress and globalization was, these were all erratic forces, but over time they produced good outcomes. We believed that there was a kind of trade-off in taking action on climate change, that even if it was really scary, that in order to halt it, that we'd need to consciously choose to forego short-term economic growth and possibly even long-term economic growth. And the new research says that that logic is actually totally backwards, that the impacts are going to be so severe and they're going to happen so quickly that we will save money, in fact, you know, create more wealth by taking action faster rather than slower. So there's one headline study that said that the global economy could save $26 trillion just by 2030 by taking rapid a rapid decarbonization path. And I don't think that information has yet really gotten into the heads of most of our global policymakers. But when it does, I do think that they'll be more moved to act than when they thought that 
doing so would require some major economic trade-off. Yeah. Now you're, you know, you're a journalist by trade. How confident are you that you're interpreting the science right? Well, you know, it's a big book with many, many papers referenced. I mean, for large chunks of the book, just about every sentence is a, is a new finding. And I rigorously fact-checked the book. I had parts of it read by leading figures in every field. I took their notes and made changes. I don't expect that absolutely every detail in the book is precisely right. There are just so many, and some things do fall through the cracks. I also know that the way that science proceeds, some of those findings will be reversed and undone over the course of the next years. That's what happens. But I think, especially on the sort of big picture, that is, two degrees of warming is impossible to avoid by conventional decarbonization, and that we're on track for four degrees or more if we stay on the course we're on. I really think that that science is completely incontrovertible and completely conventional wisdom. Every single climate scientist in the world would agree to those terms. And what that means, exactly how whether we'll have in the U.S. at four degrees, 40 times more wildfires or 60 times more wildfires, there's some debate about that. And it may be that some scientists find that I've emphasized one paper rather than another. And But the scope of the transformation that is likely to unfold if we get north of two degrees. Again, I think it's something that just about every climate scientist would say would be completely transformative to the way that we live. And so in that big picture sense, I'm, I'm quite confident that I'm on solid ground. Yeah. In terms of the sort of tone of the book, I mean, I'm interested in the, the line you had to walk, because on the one hand, you're trying to make it seem real, to galvanize us into action. But at one end of things, you're going to have some people, among them, you know, many readers of this magazine, who believe that anthropogenic global warming is a kind of motivated reasoning and, mm-hmm. you know, that it, it's not really happening or if it's happening, it's not anthropogenic and that it's a sort of conspiracy of scientists whose jobs to let, depend on this. Mm-hmm. At the other end, you'll have people who, yeah, and they'll say probably, you know, he's scaremongering, this is Project Fear, this is whatever. At the other end, you'll have people who go, you know, if it's this bad, and given the fact that a lot of this is already baked in, you know, it's too late really to do anything meaningful about it and we're simply going to have to resign ourselves to having very crispy children. Yeah. Well, I look out on the world and I see complacency as a much, much bigger problem than fatalism. So I think that it seems just transparently obvious to me that many more people, especially in countries like the UK and the US, think that the problem is less of a threat and smaller rather than people who've already given up hope. And I think that the main job of people who are concerned about climate and raising climate awareness is pushing those people who are sort of moderately concerned about the issue to become people who are who think of it as a, as the preeminent issue, preeminent political issue of our time. And I do, as I say, having gone through this experience myself, I do feel like personally I understand how important and helpful fear can be in making that transition. What was it that made you jump into this initially? Well, I, you know, I'm somebody who is always sort of interested in the near future of science and technology. So I was, you know, casually following the news from academic research, not just about climate, but generally. And I started to see, starting in 2016, a new raft of really alarming papers that suggested some really bleak outcomes were quite possible. And as a journalist myself, I was also watching the way that these papers were being written about, and in general, how the story of climate change was being told by my colleagues and rivals. And it just seemed to me that there was a great gap there. That, And honestly, I first 
got excited about it as a storytelling opportunity, which is to say it felt like a, a very large story that had not yet been told properly or at the right scale. I thought that one reason that people often disengaged with storytelling about climate is that it hadn't been told in this kind of cinematic, propulsive way that really painted an all-encompassing, totalizing portrait of the way that life would be transformed on Earth by dramatic warming. And then there was a there was a, a week of temperatures in the Arctic in, in the fall of 2016 where, I don't remember exactly what the Celsius numbers were, because I, I live in Fahrenheit, so I, that's how I, but um, where the Arctic temperatures were 50 degrees warmer than they should have been. So it was Arctic winter, but it was effectively, temperatures were like it was Arctic summer. And I knew enough about the scarier possibilities of climate change at that point to worry that what we were seeing was the beginning of what was called runaway climate change, which is sort of what happened to Venus, which was once a relatively Earth-like planet and then became completely uninhabitable in a relatively short amount of time. And that wasn't the case. I mean, the, when I looked at the science, that nobody's worried about that. Nobody's thinking that that kind of change is going to unfold over the time scale of a decade or two. But beyond that, it was about as bad as the news could get. I mean, every time I saw a new paper, it was a revision of the existing science that made our prognosis seem bleaker and darker. And I've now been living with this material for two and a half years or so, working very closely and at following the news very closely. And I can count the number of sort of good newspapers on my two hands, and every day there's a new bad newspaper. So that sense of like this bleak landscape was just opening up before me, and I didn't see it being written about adequately by anyone else. Just as a storyteller, as a journalist, I felt, well, this is a huge opportunity here. And I wrote a big story for New York Magazine that was explicitly focused on the true worst case scenario. So in the book, I'm really focused on this two degree to four degree range, which is the sort of, I would say, it, the incontrovertible boundaries of where so we're going to go. The Parsimonious case. Yeah. yeah. And the article was much more, was looking at not just if we don't stop emissions at all, but also what's the worst possible outcome of that emissions trajectory. So something like six or eight degrees. And I wrote that for a number of reasons, but one of them was to sort of test whether the story as I saw it, would engage readers as much as it engaged me. And it, the feedback was incredible. It was became very quickly the most read story that we had ever published. And so I thought, well, there's more opportunity here. There's a very gripping story, just one of the details. You're talking, it's an unknown unknown, or a known unknown right. anyway, about the microbiome we have living inside it. And I yeah. can't remember what the animals were, but you describe how one particularly hot, humid summer this entire population, what were they, coatis? They're saiga. They're kind of a, a dwarf antelope, basically. And they all died off because one bacterium in their throat suddenly turned nasty under certain circumstances. Yeah, right? this is, I mean, this bacteria had lived inside them, scientists understand, for at least thousands of years, maybe millions of years, and had never caused them any problems before. And because of an uptick in temperature and humidity, it became activated in some way that wiped out the entire species. And, you know, we have millions of such bacteria in our guts. And obviously the vast majority of those are not going to be dramatically affected if we're just one temperature, one degree warmer, two degrees warmer. But the chance that one of them could, out of many millions, it just seems, you know, quite risky, which is, I think the big, the, the big picture story is that when you look at any individual threat from climate change, you can think, oh, civilization is resilient, humans are resilient, we'll manage our way around this, we'll figure out how to boost agricultural yields, we'll build seawalls where the flooding is necessary. And I think actually a lot of that will happen. I think we will be 
able to adapt and survive. But when you think about just how many threats there are out there and just how all-encompassing the challenge is, it's hard to really believe that, especially in the space of a few decades, that we'll be able to adequately address all of them. Yeah, well, one of the things you talk about frequently, which is you know among the many reasons to be disturbed by your book, is what you, you, know, you describe as cascade effects and feedback loops. And can you talk a bit about what you mean by those or give some examples of... Yeah, so feedback loops are natural systems in the climate that respond to changes changes in the climate. So some of them will accelerate warming and some of them will depress warming. But for instance, trees naturally absorb carbon and produce oxygen. So if higher temperatures mean worse plant growth, that means that we'll have fewer trees around, which means that there'll be less carbon absorption and therefore more carbon in the atmosphere, which will warm the temperature more, which will mean that trees will have a harder time growing, which means there'll be more carbon absorption and less... And then they will catch fire and let all the carbon out into the air. Yeah, I mean, the wildfires are, are especially scary in this context. We think of them as this sort of detail from a from a disaster movie, which is, I mean, that they have that feature, of course, too. And the ones in California recently have been really harrowing, although it's been a kind of global phenomenon. But, you know, a tree is basically like a chunk of coal. It is stored carbon. And when it burns, it releases carbon. So when there are wildfires, they release all of that carbon into the atmosphere as predictably as a coal plant does. And some of these wildfires in California, a single wildfire can undo all of the progress that that state, which has been quite aggressive about its, especially its fuel efficiency, all of the technological progress that they've made in a given year can be entirely wiped out by that wildfire. And there are many other systems like that. So scientists are quite worried about what's called the albedo effect, which is, so the, as you know, if you wear a white shirt, it, you're cooler than if you wear a black shirt in summer. And the same thing is true of the planet. There's all this ice on both poles, but especially the South Pole. That ice is white, so it reflects sunlight rather than absorbing it. And as the ice shrinks because of global warming, there'll be less white and more dark blue from the ocean. And therefore, the planet will be absorbing more sunlight rather than reflecting it. So the more ice that we melt, the less able the planet will be to sort of stabilize its own climate by reflecting sunlight back into the outer space. And there are dozens of these feedback loops. The one that scientists are most scared about, although most of them will also say that it's not likely to happen in any immediate way is the permafrost, which covers much of the northern latitudes of the world and the extreme southern latitudes of the world, but especially the northern ones, and this is like permanently frozen land, contains all of this carbon, which if the permafrost thaws will be released probably as a combination of carbon dioxide and methane. The ratio we don't know exactly, but methane is, depending on how you count, at least 30 times more powerful a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide, and possibly as much as 90 times as powerful a greenhouse gas as carbon. And there's more carbon stored in that permafrost. There's twice as much carbon stored in that permafrost as now exists in the entire atmosphere. So if we're all released as once, at once, we would have three times as much carbon as we have now in the atmosphere. And some of it would be in the form of methane, which warms the planet much, much more aggressively than carbon dioxide. If that happened, if there was a sudden release of methane, the planet would, the climate of the planet would become quite quickly six or eight degrees Celsius warmer, which would make at least the equatorial band and the tropics of the planet effectively uninhabitable. Now, again, scientists don't think that that's something to worry about on the timescale of 
decades or even maybe a century, but they think that it's possible that over the course of several centuries, all of that carbon could be released and the impact on the, on the planet's climate, as I said, could be totally catastrophic. And there are just basically everywhere you look, there are these kind of feedback loops and, and cascading effects so that everything leads to something else which makes things worse. You do talk a bit about, you know, when you move into the second half of the book, about the artistic responses to it. Mm-hmm. And one of the intriguing things I think you say is, you know, we've, A, you know, some cynics will say, you know, we, this all fits into a, a long history of end of the world literature that's gone back since ever. But you do say, and I think you quote Amitav Ghosh on this, you know, why is it that the science fiction writers and the makers of disaster movies aren't responding to this in a sort of straightforward way? I mean, you'd think they'd be making hay in the way that, say, in the second half of the last century or middle, you know, science fiction writers really got hold of nuclear catastrophe totally. as, a, as a subject. Yeah, I think it's a complicated question to answer. I think it has a lot to do with this strange way that responsibility flows through this story. So when you think about nuclear war, you're thinking about typically two nations, maybe a couple of others, but controlled by a few leaders and their sort of game theory decision-making that goes into that. And with climate change, the responsibility is so much more pervasive. Each of us is doing some damage to the planet by walking through the modern world. Every time we turn on lights or get into a cab or eat a hamburger, we're, we're doing some damage to it. And I think that there's, while the, you know, I think policy leaders bear more responsibility. It's also the case that we just don't know how to make storytelling sense out of collective global responsibility. It's hard to have heroes and villains when we're all both doing the damage to the planet and enduring it and trying to face it. I think also that not doing stuff is less compelling as a kind of narrative hook than doing stuff. Yeah. And I also, you know, I think, I think that, you know, there's, especially in the UK, there's been this huge response just in the last six months or so about plastic, mostly coming from the the David Attenborough piece of, I guess it was Blue Planet 2 or whatever. But I think we have a much easier time thinking about our impact on the environment when we can see the impact visually. And that there are all of these ways that we've been trained to understand this issue aesthetically. And carbon is invisible. So it's a lot harder to picture when we were dealing with, in the UK and the US especially, dealing with really bad pollution in the 1970s, there was a much more direct public response because we could really see the impacts. And I think that's happening now in China and India where they are dealing with similar pollution impacts. But global warming is just a much much more diffuse phenomenon. And as a result, I think we don't really have a way of making sense of it. Given these difficulties, the fact that you've got, you know, it's too big for lots of people to comprehend that it doesn't lend itself to the narrative it doesn't you know, and that our political structures seem uniquely ill-fitted to act in this way I mean, yeah. you know, game, theory, game theory works against us here in, yeah. in a way that it didn't with nuclear war and how much of it's already baked in how optimistic are you really that we can actually do anything very much about it at this stage well you know i think optimism is a question of perspective so my perspective is really that- I mean, you had a kid so you put your money away yeah <laughs> You know, a lot of it has to do with how much faith you put in our political institutions, our possibilities for technological progress, and our market forces. And I am endowed with some kind of, some degree of optimism on all of those things. I think in part because I'm a child of the 90s, an American child of the 90s, who is really, a you know, came of age at the end of history and, you know, the end of the Cold War and felt like, again, that progress was 
the story of modern life. Probably some of those intuitions are a bit already looking a bit naive, but I have I am endowed with them. And so when I look at the world, I think, well, if every day we are determining the climate of the near future and what the world will look like 10 years from now is entirely up to us now, then that's an endless invitation to take action. And I think while it's absolutely the case that unfortunately, tragically, that we're not going to be able to avert two degrees Celsius of warming. So in a certain way, it's too late for that. I also think that it's never too late. It's never over because it will always be the case that we can avert future warming by and avert future suffering by taking action. So to me, there's a kind of perpetual opportunity. And I guess I'm enough of an optimist to think that we will. Yeah, so one of the points you do make in the book quite eloquently is that this idea of cascade effects applies also to the results of warming in our political setup, in a sense that the very minor, by the stage of what you described, sort of refugee crises we've had, the economic shocks we've suffered, kind of have produced much less in the way of international cooperation. I mean, you know, we're moving towards nativism and towards a kind of you know, refusal of international yeah. cooperation, towards a sort of sense that it's a kind of zero-sum game in which nations are in competition with each other. For resources and everything else. I mean, Which that is direction of travel seems to be... That, I mean, that's how most people thought of national rivalries for almost all of human history. Yeah. So we're living in a relatively brief period where we thought that we were all going to cooperate our way towards prosperity and affluence and, and peace. And it does seem in the present moment that we're backing away from those commitments now. But you, you seem to argue that the reason we're backing away from them is because of the climate change we've already undergone, or at least that that's determined some of it. So the suggestion, surely, is that continues in that same direction. I think that that is uh, something to be scared of, absolutely. I wouldn't say that I think that the, the sort of nativistic moment, the populist moment that we're living through right now is entirely a creation of climate change, but I think that climate change has played a role, especially with the Syrian refugee crisis and how it's affected Europe. And there are people who study the relationship between climate and conflict who believe that the whole phenomenon of Middle Eastern terrorism, Islamic terrorism, is a response to those parts of the world being hit hardest first by climate change. But I would say, you know, there are, um, to think about the refugee issue in particular, there is some social science that the hardest response to new arrivals happens when the number of new arrivals is quite small. And when that population grows beyond a certain threshold, that the the place where they're coming becomes more receptive to them. And I'm not sure whether that will hold globally, but I think it is possible and something to hope for that if we're, say, if Europe and the US are dealing with some significantly higher number of refugees over the coming decades, that rather than becoming more and more hostile to them, that we pass a point and become more welcoming. I can't say personally how likely I think it is, but I think that there is, in the science and the academic research, reason to think that that's possible. And we'll see what happens. I mean, I think it's also true that we're living through an evolution of the geopolitical order, and that it's quite possible that by mid-century, everything that we think of as being sort of oriented around the UN, the EU, and the US will really be reoriented around China, and exactly what kind of path Xi Jinping in particular takes over the next couple of decades I can't predict with any accuracy. I mean, I can say that, especially since Trump was elected, he's actually been much more aggressive in his rhetoric about climate change. And so he was they, just mocking Amy Klobuchar for <laughs> standing in the snow complaining about climate change. Oh, I didn't see that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, Trump was, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But Xi Jinping has, like, really... China's, there are a lot of ways China's behaving terribly when it comes to climate, but they've also been making much, much bigger commitments just in the last two years than they were in the five years previously. 
And they see themselves as coming into power as a new empire. And I don't think that they want to have that empire be burning. I think they want it to be prosperous so that they can be prosperous as a result. And ultimately, we're in the position we are now, actually, mostly because of the development and industrialization that took place in China and in other parts of the developing world over the last 25 years. When I mentioned earlier that half of all the emissions have come in the last 25 years, really that's the story of the third world industrializing and making itself something like a global middle class for the first time, which is a great tragedy of this story that, you know, there are these incredibly encouraging signs that there are so many fewer people living in poverty, so many so much less infant mortality, so much better education around the developing world. And all of this is, is a great reason for celebration in ways that actually doesn't really often find an audience in the West because we don't think about these issues so clearly or so presently. And it's an incredible triumph of economic growth that these, you know, that there, China is now a middle class country. But it did that. It achieved those gains through industrialization. And the cost of that is climate change. Now, big question going forward is whether we can find ways to sustain that prosperity or even develop it without continuing to depend on the burning of fossil fuels, and whether we can rescue those few people who are still living in global poverty. I mean, I say few, it's probably about a billion, but many fewer than was the case 20 years ago. Whether we can bring them out of poverty without depending on fossil fuel in the same way that the people in in China and the rest of the developing world have. If we can't do that, then it'll be a quite hard bargain because we'll be essentially asking the world's poor to stay poor in order to save, stabilize the climate so that the world's rich can continue to live um, comfortably in it. And that's one way in which I think climate will begin to really shape our geopolitics. I think that these debates about who's responsible will become much, much more important. Well, if those people need encouragement, they could do worse than read The Uninhabitable Earth, which makes Mad Max Fury Road seem like a fairy tale. David Wallace-Wells, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.